How is my sound? It could go up a little bit? It's good? Okay. All right. Great. Well, I'm excited to be talking to you this evening on this first day of our full retreat. How's everybody doing? Don't answer that, but how's <laughs> we're all here. I see your faces. We're all in our journey to kind of adjusting to the schedule and still arriving, still rising. It's all good. Takes a minute. Yeah, so I want to talk this evening about um, suffering, faith, and refuge. Um, and the relationship that, and the dance that they do together in our lives, in our practice, in our own hearts and minds. The Buddha talks about three types of suffering. There is the physical suffering that we have in our lives from birth, aging, sickness, death, hunger, thirst, deprivation. You know, we have bodily discomfort, physical discomfort. This is a, a part of our physical suffering, is being in this body. And then there's psychological suffering. There's the sudden pain that we can feel and from loss and disappointments, sorrows, frustrations, separation from what we want, what we love, our dislikes, sense of chronic anxiety that some of us feel, traumas, loss, fear, threats, this kind of psychological suffering that um, we feel throughout our days. And then there's a, uh, depending on how we relate to both physical suffering and psychological suffering, there's a samsaric experience that we have, kind of a, um, a habit energy, if you will, that we get into that's really looking at our relationship to these two forms of suffering. This is where we can see some cycles of ignorance, some cycles of addiction and attachment to certain views and beliefs that we have, the inner war and madness that we might experience throughout our days. This is where we experience the, the literacy of, um, of aversion and greed and, and delusion. When we uh, was looking at the New York Times this past week and the big headlines was Trump lies, a whole page full of lies. And on the back of the section was a page that said, Obama erased. And um, it just spoke to this time we're in right now of, um, of a samsaric uh, cycle of suffering and uh, madness and delusion. And uh, what we see in the world right now is um, not the result of just somebody being elected. It's the result of 
many karmic seeds or past actions that were planted that are now blooming. And we can't do anything about the bloom other than figure out a way to respond to it with more wisdom, more heart, and more intelligence. Because what we do in response to what we're seeing in the world right now really matters. How we relate to the suffering really matters in terms of what the next day and future generations, the blooms they will see. So it's a real big deal, this practice we're, we're in together. It's a really big deal. So suffering does more than create problems for us. It also gives birth to faith. And there's a teaching um, in the tradition that's referred to as liberative dependent arising. It has to do with 12 causal links that um, begin with suffering, the first link in the chain towards a free mind, towards liberation. The first link in the chain is suffering. And the second one is faith. Suffering gives birth to faith. Faith gives birth to joy. And there's a whole chain of causal actions that support, you know, more and more mind states of freedom. So today we're just, this evening we're just talking about two of them. I like the way James Baldwin says it. He says, people who do not suffer cannot grow up. They can never discover who they are. And it just seemed potent to me that... um, this speaks so much to Still I Rise, this theme that we're, we're with this week. I'm looking at what arises in our mind and just our collective resilience as a body of color and the work we're doing, the seeds we're planting. This idea of um, kind of a, we can never grow up, it implies Uh, a sense of movement, a journey, that we're moving through something together as we look at suffering. It's not just a stagnant, you know, state. There's movement in it. And depending on our response to it, we move in a direction of more wholesomeness or more suffering. And this choice that we have is, um, is, uh, it, it, it really is important that we pay attention to the fact that we're making it, that we're making choices. So I'd like for you to just reflect for a breath or two and just maybe even close your eyes if you like. And I just want you to tune in and then just ask yourself the question, what what got you here? What got you here? What signposts have been there all along that's kind of leaned you in a direction of this path, this inquiry? Just see how it feels in the body just to invite the question. 
and you can just take a breath and open your eyes again. I think we've all been on a journey that's brought us to this room and, you know, brought us to the Dharma, a faith walk, if you will, whether we know it or not. I mean, my journey has been to the Dharma has been a bunch of flip-flops and sharp turns and heartbreaks and um, deep dives and false refuges and any number of things. I'd like to share a little bit of my journey and invite you to reflect on your own just to, again, to just see how you've kind of managed to get yourself in a place with your life, with your own series of suffering and heartbreaks, to be sitting together in a room exploring the Dharma. So I grew up in the heat of the civil rights movement in South Central Los Angeles in an atmosphere of fear, violence, and jazz. And the emphasis when I was growing up was on survival. And it was a real privilege to think about ambition in my family. It was really about survival and how you stayed out of the way (laughs) of uh, harm. And that's harm inside the family and also harm in the community. I was taught early on to put your, put your faith in God. We went to church every Sunday. My mother played the piano in the, in the choir. We all had to sing. Um, and uh, there was no questioning of whether you would go and be obedient. Otherwise, it was damnation. And, you know, and there was more fear just with the thought of that, if you think about if you think about that. And early on, I must have been around seven, I'll never forget the image of my great-grandmother pacing the floor back and forth at home like a panther, pacing, pacing and worrying herself to death. She worried a lot because she couldn't protect our black bodies in the community. And I worried because I couldn't comfort her. And I remember when she died, I remember saying to myself, maybe seven or eight years old, I I can't go out like that. Sure, there was some other language at the time, but it's just got to be a better way than this worry. And giving birth to my son at the age of 15, I remember saying to my mom, I just got this feeling. I'm so excited about this child, but at the same time, I'm terrified. And she shrugs her shoulders and she says, you know why? Because you've brought another black boy into the world. And this didn't help. (laughs) You You see, I grew up... um, with a pervasive distrust of white people. And my mother taught us to beware. She said, white people have not been taught to care for black bodies. And I believed my mom, 
And there was a tiny voice in my head that said, this can't be true. This, this, this just can't be true. And at the age of 17, my father was murdered by his girlfriend in a jealous rage. And that's not the worst of the experience because what I remember mostly at that time is how tight I held on to my son and held on to him for years out of fear of losing him, not connecting that I had not been able to grieve my father's loss. It got transposed to a clinging and an attachment to my son. And after that, I, had, I went through many years of rage and uh, righteousness. I even got a well-paying job where I could tell corporations how screwed up they were, you know, and so that the cycle of being righteous and rageful was even reinforced, reinforced in the profession that I chose to be in. It's a constant war. And then at 27, I had open-heart surgery for a mitral valve prolapse. I'm convinced it was related to the holding of all of the generations of fear and um, pain that had been passed on from my family line, not to mention the environment we were all swimming in. And I remember at the time I had the surgery, this kind of small voice in my head that said, I had to trust the white surgeons with my heart, which was something they had more access to than I did at the time. And it was during the stillness and the silence and the recovery period of that surgery that I think I experienced my first silent retreat. Because it was in that time that I had to reclaim a body that I don't think I had ever known in the recovery and this sense of direct knowing of the experience of healing was so palpable it was truly a mindfulness recovery and after I got my health back a bit I uh, started experience a sense of confidence and a sense that, oh, I can heal, I can change, I can trust white surgeons with my heart. You know, it was like kind of a new day. And I was doing quite a bit of international traveling at the time. And I was also in graduate school. Fell in love with a woman, and then life really started to get interesting. Because there was no denying the purity of that alignment, that connection, that kind of um, uh, thing that had you sit up straight and had your heart open wide without apology, without explanation. A love I'd never known. This vast openness and taste of freedom that happens when you when hearts meet in a pure way. 
And my mother had warned me about these women, you know, <laughs> in graduate school, you know. <laughs> you go into graduate school to learn something, you know, straight people come out, gay, you know, married people come out, divorced, you know, it's, it's a crazy territory. And I remember saying to my mother, if you knew, how come you didn't tell me? You could have saved me some time and heartache. It was around that time that I moved to Santa Cruz and there was the land of spiritual diversity. Everything you want to do and try out is right in beautiful Santa Cruz. And I remember having this dream of this well-rounded person sitting on this flower in the middle of a still lake, very much at peace. And yet there was this storm coming down and the, the lightning had chiseled faces of people that I was in conflict with, past and, and present. And, you know, but my overall experience was one of ease and contentment and being undisturbed by it. And that was very different than how my life had been lived up to that point. So I felt a sense of invitation that this could be possible. It could be possible that I could actually experience peace and sit in my seat and allow it to be known in this very intimate way. On one trip to South India that I took, I... um, was uh, our group of 12 women who were studying the textiles and classical dance and um, the architecture there from Kerala on up to Madras. We got stuck in a hotel because of a connecting flight. And um, we had to get up at 4.30 in the morning. And I'm always kind of like the one that's on time, so it was me and one other woman that was waiting for the rest of the group to come so we could catch a bus. And all of a sudden I look to my left and I see a sea of saffron and gold robes moving through the lobby, kind of deserted lobby. And I looked around and right in the center of this kind of entourage was His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And you know, I'm blinking. I didn't really know who he was, but what I knew was that he paused long enough to look at us for a couple of seconds. But it was the most potent presence I'd ever experienced. Just this glance of mercy, this pause to see you. That was a real moment of waking up, a moment of faith, a moment of being seen that mattered in a very profound way. And on another trip to Beijing for the world's fourth World Women's Conference, I'm standing up, there was a group of us that took a side tour and I'm standing next to this black woman and we're looking at this, what appeared to be like a two-story Buddha And this woman right next to me had 
long dreadlocks. And at the time I had long dreadlocks, had big hair. And uh, so here we are, two black women with long dreadlocks, looking at the Buddha with tears in our eyes. This turns out to be Dr. Marlene Jones Schoonover, who was very involved in um, the early diversity um, activity here at Spirit Rock. So she looks at me and she says, do you meditate? And I said, well, kind of, you know. And she said, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in the Bay Area. So only in China would you tell a perfect stranger that you live in the Bay Area because everybody should know where that is, right? <laughs> so surprisingly, she said, I do too. And so she said, I want you to come to Spirit Rock and meditate with me. I want you to meet my teacher. And I said, okay. So I came here one Monday night. We came to Jack's talk. And Jack started his talk then like he often starts his talk now, which is, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because this is a part of you, it takes you on this journey of discovery. And there was something about this message or his transmission, his wise heart, that was very um, life-changing for me in that moment. And Spirit Rock became my spiritual sangha. And this was around 1995. I became involved in, in Spirit Rock. And Jack was um, uh, the first African-American retreat that was held here at Spirit Rock, was organized in a big way by Dr. Marlene Jones, Schoonover. And following that retreat, Alice Walker, who also attended this retreat, organized a sangha with nine women of color and Jack. <laughs> and we met for once a month for 10 years for a half a day and had a wisdom circle where we shared our lives and shared the Dharma. And... Um, over the time of being in that group, I came to understand the symbolism of that dream I had had many years prior of the Buddha, of this fat person with my face sitting on a flower as the Buddha, my Buddha nature, sitting on a lotus flower, having a peaceful war with Mara. So I'm still learning about faith and the relationship with suffering and faith and the beauty of the dance and how we wake up, how we rise. I feel when I look back at my life that there's a sense of more balance, more stability, more ability to experience um, impersonal and imperfect things in this ever-changing moments that we live. It was subtle, but over time I began to see that suffering wasn't so much a, 
a bother as much as it was a teacher, an invitation to ask more questions about what's happening right now in this moment. So this is not all about my journey. It's really about our journey and the fact that we all have one and have been on a journey, a journey of discovery, oh, nobly born. We all have a relationship with faith and a relationship with suffering. And you would be, you would be blown away to know the lives, the journey of the person sitting right near you. You, you, would, just, you would just be stunned to hear their stories. And yet we move through the world with such blanket projection and assumptions that we make about each other. And we do that in our own minds as well. But there are times when we can glimpse how we've been seasoned by suffering, how it's been of service to us, how it has ripened our capacity to relate more intimately with what life offers. And I don't know of anything that cultivates faith more refiningly than suffering, than our lives, than life itself. So again, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and just check in to see what you're feeling and what's happening in the body. Feel the breath moving in the body. A sense of stability in your seat. And just a soft reflection on your life. Just a light scan. How have you been seasoned by suffering? What suffering in your life has given birth to faith? (coughs) What suffering in your life has given birth to faith or a longing for freedom? How different is your life now than it was before you journeyed here? (coughs) 
And what does suffering and faith have to do with you spending six days here on retreat, bathing in the Dharma with other people of color? So you can take a moment and just open your eyes again. I'd like to say a little bit more about faith. Uh, There's two words in the Pali um, that, in Pali words that refer to faith. One is pasada, which has to do with it suggests a sense of peaceful confidence, pasada, trusting, as in a trusting heart. And um, other qualities that go with this definition of com- are calmness, a meditative mind, clarity. And pasada is also connected with investigation and examination, which is really vipassana, it's our practice. And then there's sada. Sada is the word I think that's most commonly for, referred to for faith. And it has to do with confidence, conviction, an attitude of trust that mobilizes a leap of faith. It's a quality of trust that mobilizes movement towards faith. Faith is also one of the five spiritual faculties that's taught in this tradition. And the five spiritual faculties are inherent qualities that when they're developed, they become powers, inner resources, if you will. And those five powers are mindfulness is the primary one. And then faith and wisdom are uh, are are two more, and then the combination of energy and concentration. So faith and wisdom support this sense of um, movement towards towards uh, freedom. And faith in the teaching is referred to as is characterized in one story as a as a blind giant, and wisdom is referred to as a sh- small sharp-eyed cripple. And the giant, the blind giant says, I am strong and I can go fast, but I can't see. This is faith. And then the, the small-eyed cripple, which is wisdom, says, I, I'm small, but I can see with short preci- precision. And so the two of them make a deal. The giant says, if you can ride on my shoulders, together we can go far. So the idea of faith is not this sense of blindness where you're putting it in some object or the sense of a destination that we're getting to. The wisdom that goes with this is a wisdom of, of, of this path, of these teachings, of, of um, the three characteristics of the, 
the three jewels, the Eightfold Path, is understanding that faith is in the context of wisdom and mindfulness. And faith also has the qualities of love and devotion and feelings. It's when we're um, giving less of our, you know, it's, it's feeling, giving of self is more and lessening of, of, and then there's a lessening of pride. So it's relational faith. It's a relationship with our mind and then it's a relationship in our communities. And I associate faith with, a, with an agreement with the heart. And uh, it's an aspiration, an inspiration, and a practice, something that we can develop further. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of our um, lovely teachers in this tradition, he says that faith is compared to a hand and to a seed. It's a hand in that it's needed to take hold of beneficial practices. And it's a seed in, in, in that it is the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtues. So it's a hand and a seed. This hand was when Dr. Marlene Jones Schoonover said to me, I want you to come to Spirit Rock. I want you to come with me, to trust me, the sense of blind faith. And she was confident, and I think I might have even had a little crush on her. I don't know, but that could have been why I leaned in that direction. But it, it, it was all a leaning in the right direction. And then there can be this sense of a seed where you hear the Dharma's teachings for the first time and you say, yes, that makes sense to me. I want some of that. I had that feeling, this sense of bright faith when I heard Jack speak. That kind of awestruck, whoa, this is possible. Something's happening here that I couldn't have imagined but there's something very old and familiar about it, and true. And sometimes we borrow faith from our teachers, you know, like I was, was really vibing on Jack's transmission and his love and his heart energy, and, you know, I was following his teachings around. And it's kind of like you follow the teacher's light until you can flip on your switch you know, flip on your own light. And it's a good thing. It's not a horrible thing. But it's the Buddha points us to know for ourselves. You know, to not take my word for it, but to have your practice to know for yourself. And then there is this place where we get, where we take a leap of faith because you know, despite our conditioning, convention, we start to question what we've always assumed and begin to do a deeper dive into uh, what is my conditioning? Where did I get that from? Do I still believe that? 
This kind of faith invites you to reorient yourself to um, your, your reactivity or your common uh, response to life. I was beginning in this practice over time to develop a, a kind of non-dependent relationship with faith where it had nothing to do with an object out there. It had everything to do with a, a residence of uh, a direct experience I was having, my direct experience with the teachings. I remember I'm, I'm a guiding teacher at Insight Meditation Community of Washington. And I remember when I did my first retreat there, I was, uh, it was a few, a few years back now, I was teaching with Jonathan Faust, who's, some of you might know him from Carpalo, but um, he, uh, I was, I was telling him, you know, I'm kind of anxious and I'm really not sure what I'm doing. And he said to me, he said, when you teach uh, the, the Dharma, he says, you just have to do two things. You have to know what the Buddha said, and then you have to look at your own direct experience. So this is what the Buddha said, and this is how I know it to be true. That's what you teach. I thought that was real helpful. And then right after that, he said, and the other thing is, when you get up there to do your talk, which I was about to do in like 10 minutes, he said, don't fuck it up. And I said, oh my God, oh my God. So um, he was really helpful. So faith is cultivated through the practice of, through, the, through taking refuge. We talked about refuge last night. Bhante really led us in taking refuge in the, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha said, in many of the teachings, be a refuge, be your own refuge, be a refuge, um, have the Dharma as refuge and make yourself a refuge to all beings. It's Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. These are the three gems. And being a, taking refuge in the Buddha is, is faith in the Buddha as a human being, as an awakened one, as a historical figure, as someone like us who woke up in, these, in his body and came to know freedom through the, these practices and offered them up as teachings. We can also, in taking refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the, in the teachers that are sitting in the seat that, have, um, that are sharing their lives or their experiences and the teachings t- with you. It's important in this practice, I think, to, to really be aware of the teachers that we choose to sit with. It's so important for us to, to, um, to see teachers that are, I feel is important, uh, teachers that are using their life as teachings. Teachers that are well-practiced but yet not perfect uplifting, inspiring, dignified, and secure. 
They've learned from their own suffering, regrets, and conflict. They don't apologize for having joy. Teachers that delight in service have a generous heart. And teachers that are good company. That when you sit with them, you're, you're open. You're open to, to learning and to your own experience. And we'll, many, we'll likely have many teachers and borrow faith as we're learning how to flip our own faith switch. So taking Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in our own Buddha nature. Not the thing that's out there, but the thing that's in here. Be one's own refuge. And then there's refuge in the Dharma. It's refuge in applying the teachings. Practicing in accordance with the teachings. The Eightfold Path for Noble Truths. Now there's a path that's well walked in this tradition. I think I heard Rolf saying something earlier today about his bulletproof. You know, this practice has that power. It's a verified faith. We verify these teachings through our own experience. I have a a Dharma sister uh, who came through the uh, spiritual, through, through Christianity. She said, Jesus is my Lord and personal Savior, but the Buddha left instructions. Yeah. Got the eight of this, the four of this, the five of this. It's all very beautiful. So be your own refuge and have the Dharma as refuge and then take refuge in the Sangha and the community through our own example. Make yourself a refuge to all beings. Sangha is where the Dharma can come more alive, you know. I see it in the dedicated practitioner programs, the community Dharma leadership programs. The minute we start engaging, we really see what our practice is up to. We can feel the rub and the rawness of just being human and how awkward and clumsy that is from our conditioning. It's not easy, this being human. We're all someplace in our lives that doesn't work for somebody else, you know. And no one is immune from ignorance and aversion and greed. None of us are. We're vulnerable in these bodies. And our, you know, we hurt, we get sick, we age, we, we need each other in so many ways. So Sangha is a place of practice. Ajahn Suchito says that faith is a sustained wonder. Each moment is new and it's fresh. My Tibetan teacher of many years, 
Abba Cecile Mahardy. She's passed away now, but she told me the story of the Buddha being tossed out of a hundred-story building that had caught on fire. Somebody tossed him out so he could be saved, and so some woman sees him around the 50th floor, and she hollers out, Oh, my God, are you okay? And the Buddha says, So far, so good. You know. So we can have a bit of confidence, you know, even when all appearances are pointing otherwise, you know. I haven't hit ground yet. Still all right. We can know we're suffering and still be okay. That's one of the gifts I've found of this practice. We can, we can aspire towards that. So Sangha is an important place to wake up. Uh, we can consider our actions and community as all kinds of, a series of ceremonies of love and healing. We can start close in. We don't have to go out and make a grand stand. It can be in our sitting practice where we're looking at what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering just as we sit on the cushion. What is my um, mental activity feeding, giving birth to? What am I fueling with my thoughts and beliefs? And can I make that shift, that subtle shift, like an Aikido move where, you, where you're not at war with what's happening, but you're just seeing it for what it is. I remember reading an article called Show Up for Love by um, Reverend Julia, Julia Taylor. Show Up for Love, Ferguson and Beyond. And she reads, she says, a lot of people have asked me how they can get involved. And a lot of people have wanted to come to Ferguson. This is post uh, Michael Brown. And she said, what I've told everyone who has asked is, show up in your own community. Be in solidarity. Be accountable. And justice isn't just coming to a town near you. It's here. It's already struck your town. And the question is simply, how are you showing up? How do you rise? So we can always ask ourselves in our practice, in this moment, what am I taking refuge in? What is dominating my focus and my practice? What is my energy enlivening? And is my energy reinforcing good intentions? These are questions we can begin to ask. It's useful to reflect on our lives with regularity and to kind of align ourselves with our deepest intentions. I have faith in the generations you know, you know, my great-grandmother would be happy to know that I'm a great-grandmother today 
and that my granddaughter, my great-granddaughter and I can comfort each other. And she'd be happy to know that today I'm not pacing the floor in worry, I'm doing walking meditation. (laughs) And I have faith in the heart's capacity to be broken and repaired and healed and opened and its capacity to expand, to care, and to see something bigger than my own suffering. And I have faith in impermanence. I know directly that I can shift from being a full-time rager to rage as my teacher, and then to write a book about it. (laughs) that serves towards healing. I have faith in um, what reflecting on our lives can teach us, how we can connect the dots. And I have faith in knowing that Dr. Marlene Jones Schoonover would be so happy to see us all sitting in this room. This was her dream. So it's useful to reflect on our lives. Suffering gives rise as a causal link to faith. And faith is cultivated through taking refuge, breath by breath, moment by moment, hour by hour, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Be a refuge. Be your own refuge. Have the Dharma be refuge. And make yourself a refuge for all beings. So let's sit for a minute together. And as you sit with your eyes closed, I'll leave you with this poem by Maya Angelou, Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. 
Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my hauntiness offend you? Don't you take it awfully hard, cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak, that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll take a period of walking and come back at nine for sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.